Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and a past president of the National Medical Association. Thank you uh, very much for introducing me. I think we're really uh, fortunate to have one of the world's experts uh, in prostate cancer. You know, it's not often we have a world's expert. We have a city expert, state expert. Sometimes we have a national expert. But here we have a a world expert. Dr. Max Roach is the uh, professor of radiation oncology, former chairman of that department. He is uh, world respected for his uh, his work and, and he's an expert in all types of prostate cancer, certainly localized prostate cancer. But what I like most about Dr. Roach is he's devoted himself not only to academic excellence at UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco, but also he's devoted himself to increasing health equity for men with prostate cancer. And he's attuned his research and he's attuned his, um, his dialogues and his articles uh, in that direction, as well as certainly the academic uh, strength that he brings to the table. So let's welcome Dr. Roach into our program and let's get started with uh, what's usually a, a very interesting hour. I think those of you who had prostate cancer, concerned about it, need to know about it, should stick with us through this hour. There's going to be some serious stuff here. So uh, welcome, Dr. Roach, to our program. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored to be able to be involved. You know, one of the things that I, I like about discussing things with you is that there are a lot of myths about prostate cancer. You probably heard them all. Uh, what are some of the myths about prostate cancer that turn out not to be true? Well, um, we actually don't know as much about um, why people get prostate cancer in the first place, as most people think. I mean, most people say, well, you know, I'm vegetarian. I don't eat red meat. Well, you can be vegetarian and still get prostate cancer. We, we do know that if you're a man and you live long enough and people look carefully at your prostate, if your prostate's biopsied when you're in your 70s or 80s, there's, it's likely that you can have small amounts of prostate cancer in there. Some people are confused that uh, as though all prostate cancer is the same and that some people believe that we cannot distinguish the aggressive form from the non-aggressive form. And that's not true, actually. The grade of the tumor that is the appearance of the cancer under the microscope gives us a tremendous amount of information about the likelihood that this prostate cancer <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is important, is meaningful. <clears throat> um, Gleason, there's a, there's a, there was a pathologist. Pathologists are people that look under a microscope and decide is this cancer or not. And there was a pathologist whose name was Gleason, and Gleason came up with a grading system that allows us to call low grade, intermediate grade, and high grade. The difference is if you get a high-grade prostate cancer, your chances of dying 
are 10 times greater than if you have a low-grade cancer. And if you have the low-grade cancer and you're diagnosed at age 75 or something like that, you might not need to be treated at all and still do quite well. On the other hand, if you're 75 and you have the most aggressive form of prostate cancer and you um, don't have any other life-threatening illnesses, then you probably would benefit from treatment. You know, there, I've been looking at some articles recently. You know, the, the, um, there's always this notion that African-American men have a worse form of prostate cancer uh, and have worse outcomes because of that. I've seen some studies from the VA, large studies, that suggested that if you have two men, one black, one white, starting with the same level of <coughs> cancer, and you treat them the same, uh, not only do African-Americans do just as well, but often they uh, do better. That's a recent observation. It turns out that uh, 20 years, actually 30 years ago, when I first started doing this, everybody said prostate cancer is inherently more aggressive in black men. And this dogma was being taught to everybody. But I was looking at the data and I was going, wait a minute, just because you can't blame the victim for the, you know, for, you know, for the problem. So the fact is that, um, that the studies that suggested that black men did worse were studies where they did not control for the quality of care they didn't control for the stage, the grade, the insurance status, other health conditions. And so what's happened is that more recently, as some of us have complained, no, this is not true, no, this is not true, no, this is not true, and been able to publish papers that show that race is not important. What's important is what is the stage, what is the grade, what is the PSA, and what is the quality of treatment? Those are things that are important. And, and black men, <clears throat> the best way, so when we look at data, there's population-based data where you just say, how many men got diagnosed with prostate cancer in the United States? And you come up with a big number. Let's say 300,000. And how many of them were black? And you come up with a number. And how many of them were white? And you come up with a number. And then you say, what was the 10-year survival? And you say, aha, the white men have a better survival. Well, the white men have less diabetes, less hypertension. They're less likely to kill, get killed by police. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that, that, that adds up to what mortality is due to. So the bottom line is, though, but if you focus on the prostate cancer and you control for the quality of care and the stage in greater disease, black men do at least as well as white mm -hmm. men for prostate cancer. We're talking with Dr. Mac Roach, the world's expert in prostate cancer. If you've got questions about prostate cancer, you're not going to be able to talk to a world's expert very often. So uh, we want you to talk to other people. Uh, you know, share this, call, do whatever you have to do, because we can get every question that we need answered answered from Dr. Roach. Uh, one of the couple things that, that are going on now that, uh, that seem to be different, uh, a lot of African-American men, they said this, a lot of African-American men were concerned about how the diagnosis was made. Uh, they didn't often bother, you know, the PSA didn't bother, but the digital rectal examination seemed to be an intrusion for a lot of men and maybe threatened some. But, uh, but now I understand that you don't use, that that's not as, uh, as important anymore as it used to be, uh, that the digital rectal doesn't give you as much information as you thought you needed. It's true. And, and, and you know, what's really brought this to the forefront 
is the pandemic. So most of the patients that I see now, I see them on a Zoom consult initially. So I didn't even, didn't examine. In fact, I haven't examined the prostate in a long time because the patient gets referred to me after they have a biopsy. The pathologist is called the greater the tumor. The patient has had an MRI of their prostate, which shows me the distribution disease in their prostate. And I'm talking to the patient on Zoom. And then based on all the medical information, the PSA, the Gleason score, the imaging and so forth, there really is no need for me to do a rectal exam. And I have to admit, I don't miss it. <laughs> you know, my wife used to ask me, so how was your day today? Well, you know, not, you know, I, I say, well, I had a few new patients and, then, you know, no, 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 I don't have to use this finger anymore to, you know, but it's not that big a deal. The other thing is that if you look at men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, 75% don't have anything you can feel anyway. So if you just, if your PSA is elevated and, and you, and, and because of the elevated blood test, the PSA stands for prostate specific antigen. It's a blood test for prostate cancer. The normal is, a, is up to four. If it's over four, we usually, and if you're a young guy, really young, in your 50s, even three might be a bit high. So if you do a biopsy on the patient and you diagnose cancer and then you do a rectal exam, 75% of the time you go, well, I don't really feel anything. And then, and then sometimes people say they feel something, but then one doctor says, I feel this one, and the other one says, I feel, I feel this. And so there's, there's inter-observer variability. It's not a real reliable thing. Now, if you do do a rectal exam and you feel a big mass on the prostate, then that means locally advanced disease, and that does give us useful information, but that's in a small percentage of patients. And usually the MRI is going to show it much better than the finger can. Now, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the PSA and what that means. First of all, does a PSA, high PSA, always mean you have prostate cancer? That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, when should you start getting a PSA? And finally, my third question is, the American Cancer Society said that men over 70 probably really don't need to get one. Uh, how do you respond to those three questions? Well, um, I'll be 68 uh, this year. And I can tell you that I'm going to be getting the PSA. If I'm a uh, Lord willing, I'm going to be getting my PSA checked at age 70. I think that the problem is that there are men who die at 60 because of comorbidity, diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, stroke, whatever. And so the age is really not as important as the physical condition. My father's 91, right? So if I'm going to live as long as he has, um, then, you know, why would I, you know, go 20 years without being screened and, and, and so forth? So I disagree completely. That um, that 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 the age should be the, the cutoff should be seventy. Uh, it depends on the health of the patient that should dictate that. Um, so that's the easiest that's the easiest one to to answer. the 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 PSA elevation, if you consider the normal as four point oh, if you biopsy people that have a PSA between four and ten, only about 25% of them will have a positive biopsy. So you can have an elevated PSA because of an enlarged prostate. You can have an elevated PSA because of infection. 
You can have an elevated PSA because of trauma. You know, some people ride a bicycle and they have the kind of seat where they, they hit their, they, they ride and they hit the, the prostate. I mean, you can inflame the prostate, prostatitis and just inflammation of the prostate. So infection, prostatitis, trauma, those things can happen. And some people have enlarged prostate. So uh, the normal prostate is about walnut size, about 20 cc's and feels like the soft part of your palm. But by age 65, the prostate is about twice that size on average, more of like 40 cc's. But there are people that will walk in the door with a prostate that's 150 cc's. And the normal prostate also makes PSA. So if you have an elevated PSA, it could be because you have a really big prostate. If you have a small prostate, and your PSA is elevated, it's more worrisome because cancer tends to make more PSA than normal prostate, but normal prostate can make PSA as well. So uh, it doesn't always mean cancer, but it does mean that it should be looked at if your PSA is elevated and you're otherwise healthy. Now, one of the things that, uh, here again, we just touched on, is the American Cancer Society's uh, opinion about the PSA over the age of 70. I know you say you're going to get yours. How do you rebut their their conclusion that too much is done when the PSA uh, uh, is uh, elevated uh, in older patients? Well, well, there's several parts to it. One is that they recommend that they assume some of the guidelines. The American Cancer Society used to support screening strongly. And then uh, over a period of time, there were a number of studies uh, that suggested that some men did not benefit from treatment. So the American Cancer Society became concerned about overtreatment, about people that were being treated that didn't benefit from the treatment. And so if you do the statistics, if you take a population of a thousand men that are age 70, and you look at whether or not you can show that they live longer because you check a PSA, and then diagnose and then treat them for prostate cancer, it's difficult to prove that they live longer. But the reason that they're against it is because they're concerned about the fact that a lot of men that have an elevated PSA get a biopsy and get treated and don't need treatment. Well, we don't really do that much anymore. Most of the men that I see now that have a mildly elevated PSA, that have a biopsy that shows that their grade of tumor is low, like a three plus three, we put them on active surveillance. Most of those men don't get treated. So you have to look at the risk-benefit ratio. So in the past, in the distant past, like 20 years ago, we treated everybody. And the benefits were low and the risks were high because of the side effects of treatment. But now that we put those patients on active surveillance and we recommend treatment mostly on men that have either intermediate or high-grade tumors, there the benefits are much greater than the risk. The, the risk-benefit ratio favors treatment. So those men need to be treated. Um, so it it really just depends on how you look at the the circumstances in terms of whether or not um, people should um, should have a I mean you shouldn't do if a if a patient is in a nursing home you know with oxygen on 
and there's they have Alzheimer's. No, you shouldn't do a PSA on that patient, even if they're 60. You know, but if a patient is 70 and is in good health and, um, you know, their PSA is elevated, uh, then they should be dealt with appropriately. And if the, if the grade of the tumor is low, they can probably do active surveillance and be followed. If they have a high-grade tumor and they're likely to have a 10-year or 20-year life expectancy, then they should be treated aggressively. Uh, one of the things that happens after you get the positive PSA is this whole issue of the biopsy. One of the reasons that I just uh, kind of stopped getting PSAs, and I didn't want a bunch of unnecessary biopsies. Um, what have we done in the last 10 years or so to make this biopsy situation a little more tolerable? Well, there's some blood tests that can be done that break down. For example, you can look at the free versus the total PSA. So it turns out that if you have a large percentage of free PSA, then that suggests that PSA elevation might be more from benign prosthetic hypertrophy. There's some other blood tests that do that that can give you a little bit more of an idea a lot about the likelihood of whether there's cancer there. One simple thing is the PSA density. So if you take the PSA level and you look at the size of the prostate, I, I mentioned this before, that people that have a really, really big prostate can have a higher PSA. So if you have a patient that has a PSA, which is 4.1, 4.2, just over four, but their prostate is 150 cc's or 100 cc's, then you have a lower index of suspicion that they actually have cancer in that prostate. Uh, in the patients who have uh, lower, uh, have a smaller gland, um, then if the PSA is elevated, you're more worried. Somebody just shot me a question about whether the um, whether the immune immunotherapy has a role. Is it a viable option for prostate cancer? And in fact, there are studies that have shown randomized trials that have shown that in the setting of metastatic disease. I mean, immune therapy can be used to treat prostate cancer for people where the cancer has metastasized. So there's a there's a company called Dendrion. I have no stock in the company, no no conflicts. It's a form of immune therapy which can work against prostate cancer. Also, the other thing is that it's possible. You know, one of the most complicated, one of the most uh, interesting questions of all is why is prostate cancer more common in black men? No one knows the answer to that. My working hypothesis is that it's due to chronic stress from racism. So I think that chronic stress, there's evidence that chronic stress can affect the immune system. I have, you know, there's some studies I could show you. And I think that if anybody has chronic stress, it's black men in America. And I think that that chronic stress can, there, there's, there's studies in animals, there's studies in humans showing, and in, in animals, people wonder, well, how do you stress an animal? How do you know that an animal is stressed? Well, they've taken mice and put them in containers, these plastic containers where they can run up and down in the container. And what they do is they take one group of mice and they close the container down so that the mouse cannot run up and down. And when you do that, there are biochemical changes, which are stress, flight or fright type things. The adrenal androgens, the, these, the, the, the stress receptors and so forth start firing off 
And if you infect those animals with viruses or you implant those animals with cancers, they're more likely to grow. So stress as a, as a physiologic phenomenon can be measured. And I think it's due partly to chronic immune suppression. So at the one end, in the very advanced cases, you can use immunotherapy to treat metastatic spread prostate cancer, resistant to conventional treatment. And at the other end, it might have something to do with why we have a higher risk of, of prostate cancer. And the other interesting observation with that study using that compound called Provenge is that the black men did better than the white men. Yeah. So with immunotherapy, the black men had a better response, had a better survival than the white men. And I think that's because the prostate cancer that black men have had is more related to stress due to immune suppression. And when you treat them with immunotherapy, that may work more effectively. One of the things that I think people need to make some correlation to and that we continuously call attention to in the African-American Wellness Project is, you know, when you see profiling the police uh, of African-American men, I think um, medicine profiles black men, too. And so some of the some of the outcomes that black men have is because they're profiled. They're not treated the same. They don't get the same information. Uh, and how much do you think that contributes uh, to some of the poor outcomes that African-American men have with prostate cancer? Well, part of the reason that I said I think racism has something to do with it, when you say there, there's a... There's a there's a there's a famous principle in medicine called Occam's razor. Occam's razor is a belief that you shouldn't if a person has symptoms of something, let's say they have a cough and they have a fever and they have an abnormal chest X-ray and they have an abnormal blood test that looks like pneumonia. You shouldn't say, well, they got lung cancer they got, you know, I mean, all these symptoms should, could be explained by one diagnosis. So when we look at, at, at African-American men, African-American men have more hypertension, more diabetes, more unemployment, more likely to get put in jail, more likely to get kidney failure. And across the board, black people are 50 percent more likely to die of cancer than white people. So the question is, is there a unifying theme or ex explanation that can explain all of those things? And we know what explains police shooting black men, unarmed black men. It's racism in America. And we know that there are studies that show within people that have Medicare, that have heart disease, they don't get the same treatment in hospitals, that, that, that psychiatric patients don't get treated with the same medication. The people, when it comes to being operated on, we don't get operated on by the same people. You know, it doesn't matter. Even with the same insurance, we don't get the same treatment. So, so if you're looking for a unifying explanation, it's racism in America that can explain all of these different observations. And, I th and it's clear in medicine that we don't get the same treatment. All right. Yeah, and, I, I, and like I said, we do have uh, that basic principle that underlies chronic diseases by the African-American Wellness Project. We have a piece on our website called, uh, this is how we do it, of questions that people can ask when they go in. So they have some basic frame of reference to deal with the system. But before before we get distracted by that, 
Let's talk now about the advances in treatment for men with prostate cancer. Uh, there's so many options once you get the information that it's sometimes very confusing for, um, for men to make that decision. In your experience, uh, how is that? What are the, what are the thought processes that go into uh, to your patients when they try to decide what kind of treatment uh, to get with prostate cancer? So most men, and this is true of cancer across the board, when a person's diagnosed with cancer, most people just assume I need to get an operation, right? That's the first thing, cut it out, right? So, and it seems like it makes a lot of sense to just remove the cancer. Um, and uh, it's true in breast cancer. And when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, she was like, so I said, so mom, what are you going to do? She said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? I'm going to have my breast removed. I was like, mom, you don't need to have your breast removed. You can have the lump removed and then you can get radiation and you can keep your breast. And she was like, really? Yeah. And she finally figured out what I did for a living, right? So <laughs> most men, when they get diagnosed, when a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer, a biopsy is required to make the diagnosis in most for, for localized disease. And the biopsies are performed by urologists. And urologists get paid to cut people's prostates out. So it's sort of like if you're going to buy a new car and you go you know, to the BMW dealership. You know you're about to indict the whole urology specialty. <laughs> That's not my problem. Uh, so, so the bottom line, so if you go to a BMW dealership and you go, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about all urologists. I'm talking about the typical urologists who say, well, I really recommend, you know, you should hear your options. You could have surgery or you can have radiation. I think for you, if the patient's healthy and, and say 65-ish, most surgeons will say, I really think surgery is the better way to go. The problem is they don't have data to support that. And so, you know, everybody has a right to their own opinion, but not their own facts. The fact is we have, ran we have, a, we have a randomized trial called the PROTECT trial. Like uh, it was done in the UK, they randomized men to observation, radical prostatectomy or radiation. And at 10 years, surgery and radiation equally reduced the likelihood that the cancer had metastasized, but the quality of life was better in the men who got radiation. And so, you know, so from my perspective, surgery is a good option for people that want to be operated on. But, you know, interestingly enough, African-American men are more likely to pick radiation over surgery. And part of the reason is, number one, um, when you look at the risk and the benefits, surgery has a, is associated with a higher risk of erectile dysfunction. And black men... For people who don't know what that is. Erectile dysfunction. You know, I told a patient, I told a patient once, once that that uh, that that surgery was associated with a high higher instance of erectile dysfunction, and man, he was looking at me, erectile dysfunction. What is that? And then after I explained to him, he, he said, "You mean no action on the Jackson?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about." He's like, "Oh man!" And then you know, and then the other thing is that surgery is associated with a higher risk of incontinence meaning the urine is leaking, meaning, meaning that you either have to have a catheter or you wear pads, you know, or you have dribbling. Like I, some patients say, no, my continence is good, except if I cough 
or if I lift something heavy, then I leave. I said, okay, well, fine, you know. But the bottom line is that black men are more likely to say, well, doc, you know, if the survival rates are about the same and one of them has a better chance I'm going to keep sexual function and I'm not going to be incontinent, why do I want to get operated on? You know, I, you know, I'll, I'll debate any surgeon on the planet Earth to have that conversation. The, the, the fact is this. Surgeons like to believe that the gold standard for prostate cancer is radical prostatectomy. Cut the prostate out, the gold standard. This is what the standard is and everything else is secondary. I would argue that radiation should be, uh, somebody wrote, women are watching this. How can we play a role? The elevator no longer goes up. Well, that's another conversation. Maybe we'll, we'll try to get back to that, okay? But, um, you know, the bottom line is that um, sexual function is dysfunction when you've had treatment is treatable. Radiation can affect sexual function as well, but it doesn't affect it as badly as surgery does. And it's treatable. Drugs, um, I, I just, just because somebody asked a question, I'll digress for a minute. It's hard to get it off my mind when a woman asks a question like, <laughs> like that. So when I was a resident at Stanford many years ago, I was doing follow-up on a patient that had been treated about 10 years before. And I, and I was always told, ask the patient how his sexual function is. So I asked the patient, I said, Mr. Jones, you know, how's your sexual function now? He says, well, about five years after radiation, my sexual function, it went away. Now, of course, with the surgery, a lot of those people, the sexual function goes away immediately after the operation. But with the radiation, this guy said, you know, five years later, it went away. He said, so then I got an implant. He said, my wife used to have one orgasm. Now she has three. I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. It's like that. Okay, fine. You know, so uh, the next the next patient I saw came maybe in. Done, maybe she had that operation without prostate cancer. <laughs> Was that? Yeah, well, that's, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just sharing with you. Some anecdotal experiences. So the next patient comes in, and he was looking really depressed. And I asked him, I said, so how's everything? He says, oh, I'm okay. I said, well, how's your sexual function? He was like, oh, it's terrible. You know, I said, I told him, I said, well, you know, I had this other patient. He told me he had an implant. He said, my wife used to have one orgasm, and now she has three. He goes, can I talk to him? <laughs> <laughs> so I called the guy up and said, okay for this guy to talk to you? He said, sure. But there are other options. There are drugs like Viagra that can work in some people. People can, there are injectables that can work. Uh, so the, the, you know, and the, the implants come in, they come in different types of implants. There's some implants that are semi-rigid. The less expensive ones are just kind of there, you know. But there's more expensive ones. They have a button. You push that button and the thing goes up and it stays up until you push it, <laughs> put it down, you know. So... You know, I don't know, but you know, you you have to adapt to the situation. Now, let me ask you now. It's not simple, even if you choose radiation. When should a male be screened for this type of cancer? You asked that question, and so did uh, uh, Lauren. Uh, so, most people recommend that is uh, the AUA and the uh, American Cancer Society. They tend to recommend screening around age fifty for the average person. They talked about white people, right? 
they tend to people that have risk factors like African American people tend to recommend like five years earlier, sometime earlier. I recommend a baseline at 35. That's when I got my first PSA. You know, I, I wrote a proposal over 20 years ago to study PSAs specifically in African American men, and I submitted a grant. And the and the and the and the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, said, no, 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 no. We don't want to screen black men. We don't want to screen nobody. White men were getting screened. Black men weren't getting screened. I had this theory that if you follow people, you start off with a baseline, and you then check it every few years that you could look for trends. And there's data from Kaiser that shows clearly that. People who have very low PSAs don't need to be screened regularly. They can be screened every now and then because if they're going to get prostate cancer, that PSA starts to come up at an early at an earlier time point. Family history is important. That does increase your risk of, uh, of prostate cancer, especially if you have siblings, you know, uh, brothers, father, that sort of thing. But even if you're on your mother's side, you know, some of these things are inherited in some of the genes that are similar to genes that are involved in breast cancer and other kinds of cancers. So you need to know your family history. Someone uh, flashed a message, know your family history. It is important. But a lot of times people didn't talk about this stuff back in the day. Well, here's a couple of questions that we look together. Okay. Uh, a lot of men think once they get prostate cancer, it's like a death sentence. Uh, that's one question. And there's so many options now in radiation. Could you explain the differences uh, between those, uh, a few of those, and how you make a decision about when to use what? Right. So I talked about the fact that we have low-grade tumors, intermediate-grade tumors, and high-grade tumors. And for low-grade tumors, it is not a death sentence. In fact, for none of them is it a death sentence. Um, if, if you wait until it's widely metastasized, you will not be cured, okay? But we even cure people with high-grade tumors, uh, with the appropriate treatment. Now, the, the type of treatment is sort of like if you commit a crime. The, the, the fact is that, um, you know, if you commit a, you can get a parking ticket and then you just have to pay or write a little check. Or you can commit a felony and you might have to do some time in jail, whatever. The type of treatment depends on how aggressive, how advanced the prostate cancer is. So there are some patients that have very advanced prostate cancer that I recommend they stay on medication for years. Uh, and they get aggressive radiation, not only to the prostate, but to the lymph nodes as well. Then I have patients that have sort of intermediate prostate cancer where I recommend they stay on medication only for four months with radiation. And then I have some patients that I treat who have less aggressive disease, so I would recommend only radiation to the prostate, no drugs at all. And we have a high cure rate. So the cure rates are high for all three types of treatment, but we give more treatment for more aggressive disease, less treatment for less aggressive disease, and less treatment for earlier grade and earlier stage disease. Dr. Roach, we've got a question here from, from the uh, audience, and this is one from Cynthia. She says, as a man, if he's over 65 and has a great sexual appetite, like two times per week, 
is it likely they can have prostate cancer? Does prostate persist less there's in no, sex? There's no, actually, that's, an, that's a good question. There are a couple of studies that show that regular, consistent orgasms may reduce your risk of developing prostate cancer. So sexual activity may actually lower your risk. So there's some studies that suggest that if a man has about 20 orgasms a month, it doesn't, doesn't mean that they have to be having intercourse, but they have about 20 orgasms a month. There are a couple of studies, you know, that suggest it may lower your risk of prostate cancer. There's also... Does that increase your risk of heart attacks and strokes? <laughs> no. Probably lowers your risk of heart attacks and strokes, but 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 the the thing about it is that I, I think um, sugar sugar does that, uh, uh, Dr. Lador. Sugar yeah. as a, a bet sugar and salt. I was just trying. And to there know. are and there are some there are some patients who will present with erectile dysfunction, and it can be a manifestation of heart disease because. All your blood vessels in your body are under the same exposure of risk factors for heart disease. And so some men, when they, they develop erectile dysfunction, that is, they have trouble getting erections, and they'll come in for a workup and they'll be diagnosed with prostate cancer because the blood supply to the penis is compromised, just as the blood supply to the heart is compromised. So if a man develops sexual dysfunction, he might actually have a risk for prostate cancer and heart disease and the heart disease may be more likely to kill him so you should so so if a man has sexual dysfunction it should be worked up because it might mean that it might save him from having a heart attack and also in men who have advanced prostate cancer locally advanced it is possible for the cancer to affect the nerves that affect sexual function so I, I got a question here um, about, and just on the other side, because I know there's there's been a lot of myths, and I remember um, watching my aunt um, for every meal cut my uncle uh, a plate full of, of tomatoes because she had heard about lycopene being something that uh, will help reduce his risk of prostate cancer. Are there any foods or anything dietary that we can eat that's natural that could reduce our risk of prostate cancer or is it just still like a lottery that you either get it or you don't? So for some of these factors, you can find some studies that say yes and some studies that say no. And um, But the lycopenes that the studies that support it, you're talking about cooked tomatoes, not okay. raw tomatoes like you put in the salad. So you're talking about like pasta sauce. Okay, and, and so the problem with that data, in part, is that the Mediterranean diet is associated with a lower risk of prostate cancer. And that's also associated with drinking a little red wine. It's associated with, you know, a different lifestyle. You know, so there are other factors in, uh, that, that, that may be in play. But it certainly doesn't hurt you to have lycopenes. I like lycopenes, whether they affect my prostate risk or not. But it's not the the association is not with fresh tomatoes that you cut and put on a salad. It's with the cooked tomatoes. Okay, we're kind of running out of time, Doctor Roach. I have one final question. Um, what do you see in terms of the future of the diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer? What's on the horizon 
that you as a radiation oncologist can do diagnostically or anybody can do therapeutically, uh, say 10 years from now, that we're not doing now. 10 years from now, okay. Well, um, the genetics of cancer are much better understood now than they were before. So it turns out that there are molecular patterns that can be identified in cancers that may point you to using certain specific kinds of drugs that you can combine with radiation, or you might be able to use some of them without radiation. For example, I had a patient who had a radical prostatectomy. Cancer was cut out. The cancer came back. I radiated him. The cancer had metastasized, and he failed every other treatment. And his PSA, you know, the normal one is less than four. His PSA was 700, and he looked like he was about to die. Okay, he was really looking bad. And then we ordered the test to look at the molecular characteristics of his tumor, and he had something called microsatellite instability. And microsatellite instability is a measure that correlates with a suppressed immune response. So it turns out that the cancer was blocking his body's immune response to kill the cancer. And so he was given a medication uh, called pembrolizumab, which is an antibody that blocks the area where the cancer was, was suppressing the immune system, and his PSA dropped basically to zero, and all of his metastatic disease disappeared. And the last time I saw him walking down the street, he looked completely normal, and we had, we had dinner with him and his wife. And that's a remarkable change. And, it's, and the unique thing about this is that this applies to all kinds of cancers. So that's one dramatic example. But there are other drugs for other people who don't have microsatellite instability. There are also some biomarkers that predict who will benefit from hormonal therapy in conjunction with radiation. For example, you know, Superman, if you want to hurt Superman, you expose him to green kryptonite. That makes Superman weak. When we want to weaken prostate cancer, we take away the male hormone, testosterone. And it turns out that some people benefit from that a lot and some people don't. But we have new information about who benefits more and who benefits less. And then we have imaging agents like PSMA, prostate-specific membrane antigen, which is we use for PET scanning that can identify very small deposits of cancer very early. And we're now able to zap individual metastatic foci of cancer and, and in some cases prolong survival because of the ability to diagnose those things. So there are all kinds of things that are being studied and are very promising as we sit here today. Uh, I wondered, uh, Mr. Dean, do you have any more questions uh, for uh, Dr. Roach before we uh, conclude our interview? No, I, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, I've been very, very quiet because I've got such a, a, a rich family history on both sides of uh, prostate cancer. So I'm, I'm always listening and, and I'm, I'm becoming, you know, I'm being a little selfish. I get to sit at the catbird seat and get, and get some great information. And so I think the audience is also reflecting that here. Um, you know, Cynthia is talking about that as well. So um, I, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, Dr. Rose, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, a couple of things, um, and that's why I put it on the screen. You have a 
family history, you should start probably getting screening at a black man with family history should probably start getting screened at around 35 in terms of getting that PSA. You should know what your PSA is. That's a macro to recommendation. That's not the American Urologic or the AUA yeah, I, I, or American yeah. Cancer Society. Right. Okay, right. yeah. Cancer Society says 50, but that's for general market mailing. That's for white men who don't have a family history. Exactly. So I'll talk about black men with a family history. Uh, Dr. Roach is saying probably you should start getting your baseline, baseline at, at 35. Right. Uh, other, another thing that I think all men, because if you ask me uh, right now, I probably wouldn't know what my PSA level, that's something that you should know. Just as like, you know, like you should know your blood pressure, your blood sugar. Absolutely. You don't should know trust, your PSA. Tell you, don't trust those doctors. Because I had patients say, well, my doctor said my PSA was okay. Well, the doctor might think it's okay for you, but it might not be okay for him. Okay, so you need to know right. that number. Right. So know, so know your number. So know your PSA level. So I'm trying to give it to like, so because the, there's a yeah. lot of women that are watching, so they can give it to their sons and their husbands and whatnot. Say, honey, what's your PSA level? If he can't tell you, then he needs to go find out. He needs to call if he's had a, if he's had his physical recently. He can call and say, hey, doc, what was my what was my PSA level? Or, or a lot of them's online. You can probably pull it up online and get your whatever labs they ran at your last at your last physical. Another thing that I heard today was. Um, you don't need to stop getting PSAs done uh, unless there's some specific, you know, you know, situations about your care level and things of that nature. So, but if you're still relatively healthy and you're 65, 70, 75, you should continue to get PSA tests done because that could affect your health. Additionally, we should um, do things to reduce stress. As, as a black man in America, I don't know if we can fully eliminate stress. But there should be things that you could do to reduce the stress levels of your life because that could have a negative influence on your uh, prostate long term, just having elevated stress levels all the time. And then have a healthier, uh, more plant-based diet. Um, exercise, exercise, exercise probably reduces your risk of getting prostate cancer too. So diet, ex obesity increases your risk across the board of cancer, including prostate cancer. So obesity is a bad thing and exercise is a good thing. So, so we got uh, we got a question that says, how can people reach you? But it sounds like you're the next step. Like they've got to go through steps one and two, and then you're like step well, three. Along anybody can Google me. If you Google okay. me, you can find me online. I'm not, I'm not hiding anywhere. I'm at the University of California, San Francisco. You can find my email anywhere. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rose. Okay. It's Go a ahead. pleasure and an honor. We have to do this again. And one time we should just talk about radiation. We should just okay. say, okay, everything you want to know about radiation for prostate cancer. We can talk about proton radiation. We can talk about seeds. We can talk about IMRT. We can talk you about know. SBRT. We, we operate with the principal. Leave we got a question out, out the door out, before you leave. Are PSA testing a part of regular exam or does it need to be requested? Well, it varies by practitioner. Some doctors routinely do it. And some doctors, there's a, at Kaiser, after age 70, they routinely stop doing it. So if you're, if you're a Kaiser patient and you're over 70 and you're in good health, you have to ask for it. But if you're younger than that, I would just ask for it. Don't even just, just tell them I want a PSA. 
and then don't assume that you would need to be treated if it's a little bit elevated. But no, you have to ask for it. But some doctors just do it routinely. Yeah, and also I would I would add to that is that that's what we were talking about earlier in terms of knowing your family history. It, when you fill out that form, fill it out completely. Don't skip over that family history part because that will send that part send signals to the doctors of what type of labs they're going to run. Right. And so if you don't put I've got a family history of prostate cancer, or if you don't know if you've got a family history of prostate cancer, then they may or may not, and it'll be in that doctor's hands to say, oh well, they don't have a family history, so we might not run that test. And so you've got to take it out. You're of a black man. You're at risk. Okay, so and we do have on the African American Wellness uh, Project site something that we call "This is how we do it." Questions to ask your doctor uh, yes. when you're interested in prostate cancer. So we want to thank you. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back to kind of do a COVID update. Uh, thank okay. you. I understand the hesitancy and the resistance that some folk may have to taking the COVID nineteen vaccine. And you absolutely have a right to feel hesitant. The COVID is real. And I know from firsthand experience, I had it. I wouldn't wish COVID on anyone. I fully recovered, but I don't want to ever be that sick again. You and all the people that you love are at risk from COVID-19 infection. So please get vaccinated for yourselves, your family, and your community. Thank you. was a very powerful message. Uh, but before we go and talk about what's happening with COVID now, I want to share with the audience, I did have prostate cancer. Uh, and I had to go through some of the very same things we talked about with Dr. Roach. Uh, he uh, obviously has a great deal of knowledge about a lot of things. Uh, and I would say that the PSA was important. I would say that finding the right doctor was important. Getting the right treatment was important. And doing the follow-up was important. Now, I don't want anybody sending me uh, you know, give them mine is relatively minor, not minor, but any cancer is significant. But I, I was effectively treated, and uh, for all intents and purposes, right now, at this moment, uh, everything is going well. So uh, we really want to have him back so he can expand this discussion. So uh, this is an interesting week, uh, uh, Mr. Dean, for prostate for uh, COVID. Uh, certainly, this variant, this Delta variant, uh, is uh, on the horizon. A lot of people are dying who don't. Most of the deaths from uh, coronavirus now are unvaccinated people. Yes. Uh, so we still want to always say, uh, talk about it, uh, um, and, and, and suggest to people that they do get uh, consider the information that's out there about vaccination uh, or not and the dangers of not being vaccinated. And that's pretty much all we want to say. We don't want to keep. Uh, can, I, can I just say one thing um, uh, about uh, the coronavirus and, and the vaccinations and the rates and the deaths and the hospitalizations that people are seeing going down? And so I think the unvaccinated people are, are taking this as a sign of I don't need to get vaccinated. And what's what the problem with that is that when you're when you collect data, what's happening is all the vaccinated people are getting dumped into that same bucket. And so that's why you see that sharp decline on all those graphs. If you pull the if you pull all the vaccinated people out of that data, the number of deaths, the death rates has not gone down. The number of hospitalizations hasn't gone down, and the number of people getting uh, contracting COVID has not gone down. 
what has gone down is they're dumping the 150 million people that are fully vaccinated into that data and it's and it's causing an effect on it but unvaccinated people are still at the same risk as they were before people started getting vaccinated so you have to make sure that you're really cognizant of that and don't just get seduced by oh it's going down i don't need to get vaccinated that is untrue so i have to get that off my chest we got to think something into that data say oh i don't need to get it it's going away and said no it's not going and i reinforce that if if you look at uh, polio vaccine, I always mention this. Polio vaccine has been around for 50 years. The mm-hmm. last case of polio was this year. And so consequently, this virus is going to be around uh, for a very long time. And what Mr. Dean is saying is absolutely correct, is that if you get infected with the coronavirus, you have the same risk of going to the hospital, the same risk of dying. In fact, most of the people that are dying are those people who are unvaccinated. In addition, there's something called the long haul. That yep. means for people who get infected with uh, with coronavirus, then a lot of them have heart disease, lung disease, uh, and um, and pulmonary disease. I mean, uh, and uh, brain disease. And so, consequently, it's not insignificant. Plus, as you see now, every day, businesses are not letting people come back to work, and hospitals, entertainment venues, uh, and major uh, fi- financial groups. You have to be vaccinated. Uh, then I think, are you going to be terminated? But I don't think that should be a major part of your own personal decision. But I think we do have to say, look at these statistics really carefully, read right. them every week, uh, look at the dangers that these variants pose for you, and then make a decision. Uh, before we yeah, leave, yeah I, I think we also have to mention the Delta variant um, because that's the that's the, the variant right now. And so, uh, Cynthia, I would say to your family members under the age of 45, um, talk about this. Dr. Lenore just mentioned it in terms of long haulers. Um, and additionally, we had a insurance rep, a medical um, chief medical officer that does reviews for insurance. One of the things you're going to have to start um, putting on your medical records is if you, if you, even if you survive COVID, is you're going to have to list COVID as a pre-existing condition. And so when you go into your doctor's office, if you are, if you're short of breath, if you have headaches, things of that nature, and that you put COVID, it can't be re- ruled out as the cause of this particular disease. Additionally, if you start trying to get life insurance for you and your, or you and your spouse, uh, and you list, hey, I, I, I'm a survivor of COVID, um, COVID is showing over long terms, it, it, still studies are being done, but it's showing to have shortened, to have an effect on your, your life expectancy. And so therefore, your insurance premiums might be higher, um, to get the same amount of coverage because they're saying somebody that has, even if they've survived COVID, they're going to have potentially uh, more medical problems to deal with going forward. And so therefore, they're going to be more of a burden on the insurance company. They're going to utilize their policy more more frequently and more often than somebody that didn't have COVID. And so therefore, they're going to charge you at a higher rate. So those are things you have to consider, not just the fact that you're afraid of the vaccine. I, we understand vaccine hesitancy and, and fears about that. But you have to also consider what it means to even, even if you survive COVID, what does that mean for your life going forward? Yeah. So yeah, I think that uh, each week we'll we'll try to do some COVID updates. We, we've been talking about the Wellness Project, and we're about to make a few changes. Uh, we're going to change our time to uh, a seven thirty time on the east, and oh, that's right. program for the west. And also each week we're going to give away something to people who remember two or three things 
about the interviews that we have. And we always appreciate if you would tell us what you want to hear, what subjects you want uh, to, to talk to us, you want us to, uh, to talk to you about. We want to get that information. Uh, but each week we want you to join us as a regular member of the watching of the welcome uh, of the Wellness Watch family, uh, and uh, tell your friends about it and share uh, not only our um, our uh, TV pro- our uh, Facebook project, but also share our uh, our podcast. We have a podcast called Black Doctors Speak, and it repeats uh, some of the information that we've shown here. So, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Roach for joining us. I'd like to thank Mr. Dean for always being good about oh, what oh, I, I know you're about to hit the lot, but for this week, can we give can we give the, the book to Cynthia? Cynthia, if you would, please um, reach out to the African American Wellness Project or reach out to me directly at blackdoctor.org. Um, Cynthia, you, you, you've stayed with us. You asked a question. You have been active in the, in the comment section. So we want to thank you for that. Uh, make sure you share this program. So Cynthia, send us your contact information and we will uh, get that book out to you. We're gonna send uh, Yeah, we're gonna send you the book Focus on Your Health. How to yeah. construct your own health system uh, with something that we at the African American Wellness Project uh, have as our uh, major focus. So the book is called Focus on Your Health. Uh, it has everything that you need to construct your own healthcare system. We'll get that out to you, Cynthia. And each week we're gonna give away uh, at least a book and often some other opportunities for you. So thank uh, thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, uh, Mignon, for all the uh, production that you've done today. I think it's been exceptional uh, in terms of how we were able to move this along. But most of all, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us for the Wellness Watch. Remember, health is your biggest asset. We'll talk in the next week. Protected. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Remember, listeners, Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctors Speak, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and at Black Docs Speak on Twitter. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.